You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. So later during the oral sessions, there were two other great papers that addressed questions of how we manage uh, cesarean delivery. One complication associated with cesarean delivery that we all struggle with is wound infections and post-operative infectious diseases. The first paper I think that would be interesting to talk about is the CSOAP trial, which was azithromycin-based extended-spectrum antibiotic prophylaxis for non-elective cesarean delivery, a pragmatic multicenter placebo-controlled double-blind trial, and this was presented by Dr. Alan Tita. In this trial, the addition of azithromycin was compared to placebo for reduction in post-op infectious morbidity and showed a significant improvement in wound infections and post-op morbidity. I think that at our institution where we did participate in CISO, I think we've already adopted adding azithromycin for our non-scheduled cesarean deliveries. would love to get input from the editors here on your strengths and challenges from the study and how you guys are thinking about implementing it. This, George, at UTMB, we are going to implement it. We were also part of the trial. All this is going through our normal channels to implement something like this since the Therapeutics and Pharmacy Committee has to approve that. I can tell you so far, the biggest challenge I've had was to convince the committee that there is no problem with the prolonged QT syndrome because those who are familiar with azithromycin, there have been some cases reported of prolonged QT syndrome with azithromycin, but these were all older people with other medical conditions with prolonged use of azithromycin, not with a single dose. Azithromycin has been used before in the setting of cesarean section prophylaxis, and the reports are out there of hundreds of patients, and there was no prolonged QT syndrome in these cases or in this trial, so I don't think it's applicable to this, but for those who are planning to implement it, they may come across this question, and then the answer is these are healthy young women, no other comorbidities and it's a single dose that they receive. This is Sean. We were part of the trial as well at UT Houston and have implemented the intervention. I think the challenges that we have are all procedural and logistic. You know, this is primarily targeting non-elective cesarean sections. So these are patients having cesarean delivery during the process of labor, either for labor arrest or for non-reassuring fetal testing. It's certainly practically easier to give your single dose of your cephalosporin within in 60 minutes of incision. It's a little bit more challenging to do the logistics of the azithromycin. It's newness given the rate that you have to infuse it at. But all in all, with our experience within the trial, it's been not that bad. I think the two areas where we're spending time is just to convince the anesthesiologist because oftentimes they're going to be the ones that are starting it in the operating room or making sure it gets continued because the infusion time does take a while. And the other is is just calming the nerves of our pediatric colleagues, ensuring them that they're not going to have problems with uh, delayed diagnosis of neonatal sepsis or, or other types of newborn infections. 
we haven't implemented it yet here, just as uh, to waiting for the paper since we're not involved in the trial, we don't have all the details. And then just to follow our usual process of discussing these protocols with all the groups. And I was just saying it's interesting to learn some of the logistic challenges that places that have implemented it have faced. And so we'll bear that in mind as we go forward. Just the one comment that Sean mentioned and I forgot to mention earlier, the trial was in non-scheduled cesarean delivery. So these patients were in labor or different stages of labor. So the question is also about what we mentioned before, the indication creep, whether this will then go into women who are having scheduled cesarean. I personally would say, no, don't do it in those with scheduled cesarean. But I'd like to hear from the others what they're planning to do. I completely agree on that. As you said, you know, they were not part of the trial. And there's reason to believe that women who have been in labor and have had multiple vaginal exams have a, a different risk profile compared to women who have not been to elective cesareans. And then the other thing is that because the rate of infection is generally lower in the elective C-sections, even assuming that azithromycin had an effect, the number needed to treat would be a lot larger. And so for both of those reasons, I completely agree that we should limit it to to the patients who were in the trial. I'll just, for the sake of discussion, disagree with you and George a little bit. You know, the intervention, what we're talking about, azithromycin is inexpensive, the risk profile is low, there's evidence of benefit in this other population. And I certainly agree that the impact on surgical site infections and infections in general would be lower, but uh, uh, these SSIs do occur in scheduled sections. I don't see the harm part, and I don't necessarily see the cost. Dr. Alan Tita has made a compelling argument for widespread use of azithromycin even outside this trial based on the data that they presented from UAB. So we also do this for scheduled sections. Given a large percentage of our patients with scheduled sections still have huge risk factors because of their BMI, the number of C-sections, their problems with wound healing, their diabetes, we're considering using, we're, we're utilizing this intervention as well in scheduled sections. That's an argument I've heard. To me, the biggest reason to include the scheduled C-section is to make things more practical and simple rather than confuse people into, oh, is this patient we should give them? Is this patient, no, we shouldn't give them. That, to me, is the biggest argument to do it uh, both ways. But on the other hand, the argument for me, the bigger argument that not to do it is the rate of infection in the scheduled cesarean is so, so, so low. How much lower can you make it with this regimen? The number needed to treat would be in the thousands probably for the scheduled C-section in order to prevent one surgical site infection. So I think I'll also add another reason I would say is extending it to women who have elective cesarean may be problematic first because the rate of infection is low, but also if a woman has the risk of infection based on other factors, be it obesity and so on, the question is whether you know azithromycin will have the same impact. And then the second issue when you begin to extrapolate it to a lower risk group is that the risk-benefit profile calculation becomes different. 
So just as in the lead preterm for steroids where, you know, you are not going to hold delivery as you would do before 34 weeks because the relative benefit may be lower. The same thing may be said about other effects of antibiotics. So for example, broadening the antimicrobial spectrum may affect other things which like the neonatal microbiome and so on, which are increasingly being implicated in health and disease. And so I think as the risk of the thing you are trying to prevent is lower than other issues, the potential considerations become more important. But I think it's definitely an open argument where different institutions will, will fall on different sides of the argument. Let me clarify just one thing that also Sean mentioned so that we're not accused of dichotomy here between what we said before about the steroids and this. There is actually some evidence, although not randomized trials, that even in scheduled caesarean, azithromycin is safe and may be effective. So. We're fortunate to have with us Dr. Tooley, who is the presenting author for another paper regarding prevention of surgical site infections at time of cesarean. His group presented the chlorhexidine alcohol compared to iodine alcohol for preventing surgical site infection at cesarean, a randomized controlled trial. It's sometimes refreshing to see studies of things that we do every day and we think we know what we're doing with them without having any real science behind it. So Dr. Tulli, I would love to have your input on why this study, what your findings were, and then the group can discuss how we might apply this. Thank you. Skin preparation is one of the things we do in an attempt to prevent post-cesarean infection in addition to antibiotics that we just discussed. Different institutions use different types of antiseptics. Some use just plain iodine, some use plain chlorhexidine, but it's probably more common for people to use a combination of iodine and alcohol or chlorhexidine and alcohol. As cesarean, specifically, there have been very few trials comparing chlorhexidine to iodine-based antiseptics, and many of the studies have been small or underpowered to show any differences. Data from general surgical procedures have been more interesting. A large study about four years ago by Darochi suggesting that chlorhexidine alcohol was better than iodine alone. Issues with the general surgical procedures were that the majority compared a combination of chlorhexidine alcohol to iodine alone, and so there's always debate as to what is the active ingredient accounting for the superiority. The other thing that I'm definitely a proponent of is often to be careful extrapolating data from non-pregnant patients to pregnant patients. Sometimes it's reasonable, but other times it may be different. Because of that, we conducted a study with the goal of comparing chlorhexidine alcohol to iodine alcohol for preventing surgical site infection. So we randomized nearly 1,200 women to each of the antiseptics. We carried out all the other routine infection prevention measures. We performed active surveillance where we called these patients at home, reviewed charts from their hospital visits to look for signs of infection. The principal investigator reviewed all charts against the CDC criteria, blinded to the group assignment to be objective about the diagnosis of the primary and secondary outcomes. So the primary outcome was superficial surgical site infections, and this was was chosen for two reasons. One, in the general surgical literature, these were the types of infections shown to be influenced by antiseptic, and therefore we used those. And then from a biological plausibility standpoint, we thought it was unlikely that the skin antiseptics will have powerful influence on endometritis, which is the space infection in the case of cesarean. So the groups were well balanced, and we found that the rate of the primary outcome was 7.3% with iodine alcohol compared with 4.0% with chlorohexidine alcohol, a relative reduction of 45%. 
the superficial and deep infections were each lower, nominally lower, with chlorhexidine alcohol, although the study was empowered to show significance in those groups. Other secondary outcomes, other wound complications were not different between the two groups. Based on this large trial, the largest in any surgical procedure, including cesarean, we concluded that chlorhexidine alcohol may be, uh, is the preferred antiseptic of choice at cesarean. What is your estimation of the frequency of use of these different type of skin preparations? How much of the country was using one versus the other, or are there other things that are being used for surgery? At the time we were conducting the, the trial, although we didn't conduct a formal survey, the sense talking to colleagues from other institutions was that places were divided almost evenly between chlorhexidine-based and iodine-based antiseptic. And I use base because some use iodine alone, others use iodine and alcohol. I will say that once the general surgical trial was published, which suggested that the chlorhexidine-based antiseptic was more effective, I think a significant number of institutions moved towards chlorhexidine. There was a review from University of Florida, Gainesville, where the author suggested among 10 things to reduce infection that we should use chlorhexidine-based antiseptic. That seems to be the practice that most people had moved to. It was interesting at the meeting to speak to other people who still use just chlorhexidine alone or iodine alone, and a fire hazard was considered an important consideration, which we could discuss. We didn't see that in this trial and in many institutions that have switched over if the right precaution portions were used, including at least a three-minute wait between application and incision, and in the case of emergent cesareans, not using the bovi until there was evidence of drying of the antiseptic that the risk of fire was minimal. How do you think the findings as far as the frequency of infection compare between your study and that from CISO? Are they similar, significantly different? What's your interpretation? So the rate of infections, so if we limit this to just wound infections alone, the rates are comparable. In CISO, in the placebo group, the rate of infection was 6.6%, and in the azithromycin group, the rate of wound infections were 2.4%. So our rates were 7.3% with chlorhexidine alcohol and 4.3% around the same ballpark. But of course, important to note that the primary outcome for CISO was a composite. So overall, it was 12% with placebo versus 6.1% percent with azithromycin. Have you changed practice already at your institution then? Yes, at our institution we've changed over to chlorhexidine alcohol. Now you mentioned method waiting three minutes, right? Yes. That's an important point. Any other thoughts on these cesarean delivery management studies before we move on? What was the hardest part about conducting this trial for you? The most difficult one was recruiting patients over at night. So we have a study coordinator who was there during the day to recruit and consent and randomize patients during the day hours. At night, relied on the benevolence of residents, that could be difficult. I think we could have completed a study earlier if we had recruitment which was around the clock. Another important challenge was following up these patients. And we thought that was important because, you know, some estimates are that 80 to 90% of infections occur after patients go home. And so it was important to track them at home. Patients changed phone numbers and didn't pick up their phones and so on. But I think persistence led to a very high level of follow-up. What is your gut on what percentage of the overall cesarean sections during the time of the trial were you able to include or enroll? 
We enrolled about 1,200 in a three-and-a-half-year period. We performed in this institution about 1,000 caesareans a year, so that was about 3,000 caesareans who have been performed during that period, and we enrolled 1,200. So 1,200 over just over 3,000 caesareans. Now, not all of those were eligible for different reasons, including not wanting to participate or having an allergy to one or the other of the antiseptics, but our rate will be 1,200 over just over 3,000. Because you how hard trials are to do, huh? <laughs> that was it for my questions. Wonderful. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.